hey, it's me. And I've been thinking that it's been a while. And I miss you. I mean, we miss you. Yeah, like we've had some fun times this summer not podcasting about Ontario politics, not asking you for your support by heading to patreon.com slash OntarioLoud or OntarioLoud.ca. But sometimes you got to see what else is out there. Explore the world. Explore your own feelings to know that what was right was right there in front of you all along. Ward Smith was right there in front of us the whole time. We were on break, but Ward was logging into patreon.com slash OntarioLoud or OntarioLoud.ca to sign up to support us. And we saw that, and we went out and hired two more volunteers to help our pod sound better and reach out to more communities. And so we're back, and we're not leaving this time. Well, we're not leaving until the holiday season at the very least, but we're happy to be back. And we're happy you're listening, and we're happy that some of you are supporting us on Patreon on the show. Welcome to Ontario Lab, conversation about politics, public policy, and current affairs had between recovering political staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Alexi White. I'm Kate Hammer. And we're back. Today we are kicking off our fall federal election series. A Twitter poll has overwhelmingly told me not to call this, is it true, doe? Uh, but this is a series where we will examine areas of the federal liberal record where we have noticed a certain level of progressive discontent and try to take a good, hard look and see what's to like in the current government's record, what we wish they'd done differently or better. We'll come up with a name for it, but in the meantime today, we have two expert guests in to discuss our first topic. Katie Davey, former special advisor to the Premier of New Brunswick and host of FemWonk, a public policy podcast that brings a gender equality lens to current affairs. It's a favorite of all of us at Ontario Loud, and you can find it on just about any major podcast distribution network. So welcome to the pod, Katie, and Dr. Kate Graham, an instructor in political science at Western University, author and visionary behind the Mayor's Project, and host of No Second Chances, a podcast that sat down with Canada's 12 female first ministers to talk about why no women have ever been reelected to a first minister post. It will make you cry. It will lift your spirits. <laughs> it is necessary listening. Katie, Kate, welcome to the pod. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. Really looking forward to the discussion today. But before we dive in, Kate Graham, want to spend a second on <laughs> something you announced the other day. Surprise. Uh, <laughs> uh, can you tell us what you're going to be spending the next few months doing? Sure. So I've just announced that I am uh, stepping into the Ontario Liberal Party leadership race, joining the slate of fantastic candidates who are already working hard to rebuild the party and uh, couldn't be more excited to be a part of it. We are truly excited that you have joined the race too. If uh, oh, uh, we can ask why now, why you, what, what made you want to sort of take this leap? I feel like we as a party and as a province, we are in a moment right now that doesn't come along often. You know, a really tough election with a clear message from voters about change, followed by, you know, leadership race and with the kind of provincial context that we have right now, where I think people, the desire for change is stronger than ever before. And then set against this backdrop of what I see as, you know, lots of nervousness about politics, everything from Boris to Trump, you know, people want to see politics done differently. So these moments don't come along often. And I think as a party, uh, we have a chance to ask big questions about who we are and what we stand for, what we want to see, and to bring thousands more people into the party and into that process. So I, I think it's a key moment for the party, and I couldn't be more excited to participate in that conversation. 
Well, like I said before, you know, from all of us, you know, wishing you the best of luck. We're really excited you're on the race. Um, we actually organized this episode before we knew. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm so happy to have you on uh, in this particular moment. Encourage anyone listening to look you up. I, I will say this this is a funny thing that um, is really relevant to our topic today is making the decision to run. Uh, and I think this is true for everyone, but maybe particularly for women. There's a lot to think through about all of your existing relationships, you know, saying, yes, I'd love to be on this podcast and I'll teach this class and I'd love to participate in this organization. And you start to, uh, you know, you want to participate in partisan politics, but also know that the moment that you step into something like this, you know, it can change people's uh, perception. It can change what your role looks like. So those dynamics are not, not always easy. And I really appreciate how flexible and open and encouraging you've been. I'm taking this on, but also to be able to be here today, probably more in a political scientist capacity to talk about this really important uh, topic. Our pleasure. And that's a great segue into our discussion today, because our objective with uh, today's podcast is to take apart the fake feminist bumper sticker that has been slapped onto the bumper of one Justin Trudeau's tour bus just in time for the 2019 campaign. I think this label really got started courtesy of the SNC-Lavalin affair, and in particular, Justin Trudeau's treatment of his two top female cabinet ministers, Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott. I'd recap the whole thing for everyone, but I think we're all familiar, uh, probably beyond familiar with everything SNC at this point. But thankfully, we found a fresh take on YouTube, courtesy <laughs> of Candace Bergen, the MP for the Manitoba riding of Portage Liscar. Let's listen in. What has become abundantly clear over the cover-up of the SNC-Lavalin scandal is that Justin Trudeau is a fake feminist. The whole SNC corruption scandal started when SNC-Lavalin was allegedly caught bribing dictators and spending money on parties, prostitutes and yachts. This of course would be against the law. Then Justin Trudeau and his good old boys told them, don't worry, we'll take care of it. The former Attorney General said no to the good old boys. And the result? She was promptly fired and silenced, and she remains muzzled to this very day. The Liberals are happy to silence women of principle while covering up for the actions of Trudeau's corrupt buddies. There's been a running theme in Justin Trudeau's term as Prime Minister. He always claims to say the right things, but when push comes to shove, he never does the right thing. So the prime minister responded by saying people should focus on the actions his government has taken and contrast that with the conservatives who, quote unquote, still can't reconcile themselves to defending a woman's right to choose. Other actions he pointed to do include a gender balanced cabinet, investing hundreds of millions of dollars in women's shelters and organizations, moving forward on pay equity legislation. And so in this context, going into an election where the participation of women is going to be critical to their success, starting big, what do we think of the fake feminist label just at a really high level? I tend to think it's always a good thing when we talk about uh, and consider gender dynamics in political discourse, just period. So on one level, talking about feminism as a way that we evaluate our leaders is a good thing and something I want to see more of. On the other hand, sometimes when these things are discussed, there's a real underlying, there's really problematic assumptions about what feminism means and how that label is applied. So for example, in that video, talking about muzzling the women, like you would think that the women who are part of the cabinet are like little baby bears with a muzzle on. It's it's really condescending and offensive. And, you know, I understand the sort of partisan angle of being able to label, you know, fake feminist, fake environmentalist, but it really diminishes the importance of that label and that concept in Canadian politics. So on one hand, it's good that we're talking about this. On the other hand, 
we need to be really careful about how we use those terms. Yeah, I really like that point. Like it diminishes the women as though like once you put women in cabinet, then you're supposed to treat them like these precious little delicate animals, these delicate dolls who then can't be treated the way the men in cabinet are and their viewpoints cannot be criticized. I couldn't agree more. And I think it's really interesting when we kind of look again at what the context has been over the last few months. And I think even just using the label fake feminist was a way of essentially condescending to the prime minister as well. But then I actually think it was listening to this podcast, I started thinking about Doug Ford's cabinet shuffle. And he basically shuffled every single prominent woman in his cabinet down. I don't like using that narrative. Um, obviously, every position in cabinet is important, but there was virtually no criticism about that. So I think that it's, again, interesting to see who is being targeted with these types of narratives. And that's something I'm nervous about, right? You've got a leader who actually is willing to stand up and label himself as a feminist. And because of that, he is open to criticism. But because of that criticism, you see others not so willing to kind of step forward and stand up for those types of things and use that type of language. So that's something that I'm particularly nervous about with this narrative. I mean, and that's what's interesting about the clip, Chris, that you played. I think it's so clear when you watch that clip in particular, I think that's what's interesting about it, is it's so clear they're really trying to dig at the fake label. I, I think when you listen to that, I think their investment in the notion of feminism or lack of becomes a bit more plain. And the fact that they really um, have a bunch of voters they're playing to who they feel the notion that Justin Trudeau is fake will stick to those voters. And that's really the message they want to get across becomes plain um, in that clip with, with Candace Bergen. I also thought it was interesting to compare that to, I don't know if anybody watched the recent episode of the Patriot Act. <laughs> yeah, um, but the, like The title is called The Two Sides of Canada. And it kind of also dug in a little bit to that two-sidedness of the prime minister, which I do think is a fair criticism. I would have liked to have seen, you know, digging into, for example, our universal health care system and how people still have to pay for things um, as kind of that two-sidedness. But I think that you're right, that it's a narrative that the Conservative Party is trying to push right now, whether it's, again, like fake environmentalist, fake feminist, it's, it's really about labeling. I also had that feeling when I was watching the Patriot Act episode. I think it just, it exposes a, a larger, a larger issue for Trudeau and his reelection that has kind of plagued him, I think, since the beginning of his term, which is how much of his, you know, just beyond feminism, how much of his persona is is his image and and what, the way he talks and how much of it is his actual record. And so it's interesting to see him on this making his defense be, judge me on my record, not on what I say, because when people do that, like Hassan Minaj did in the, the Patriot Act episode, he doesn't always come out as good as maybe he'd hope he did. Yeah. So I want to dig into that a little bit and what we think the effectiveness of that strategy is going to be going into the election. Because I think if I'm reading the room right, probably a lot of progressives are going to take a line of attack from the conservative party on this with a grain of salt, particularly when we see some of the conservative sort of doublespeak on women's right to choose and a lot of these things. I think there's a lot of progressives will sort of recognize that line of attack for what it is. But, you know, if you are taking sort of a progressive feminist lens to his record, I want to start with maybe the the most obvious thing. We really started talking a lot about like the fake feminist label in particular when Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott were uh, removed from cabinet. And do we think this is relevant to his bona fides? And if we don't think it is, 
other element of his record that I guess short shore up his feminist credentials that we can point to? Uh, I think Trudeau is really wise to focus back to that record because it would be hard to argue with the things that he has concretely done that advance the interests of women in this country. You know, and the obvious kind of markers of this, things like the gender balance cabinet, gender-based analysis and the budgeting, some of the investments they've made in like really significant policy areas that disproportionately benefit women and raise uh, the lives of women and girls. We, I think we've correctly assessed that little labels like fake feminist, you know, it's a, it's a partisan approach to trying to undermine someone's credibility, but uh, he's got, I think, a really solid platform to stand on. And, uh, and also continuing to show that like, he's got a cabinet full of rock star females who are just shining in all kinds of ways. And so I, I think he's really smart to rise above and, uh, and go back to those more substantive policy advancements that have been made over the last four years. I'm just curious, actually, like, what in that list of policy achievements, Kate, you mentioned a few gender-based analysis, which of the sort of the policy accomplishment of the Trudeau government stands out as sort of the most supportive of uh, this government having a strong feminist record? One of the things that is really important to me, I, I want to see more women in visible leadership roles in government because we know that there is a generational effect to that. Uh, it has the benefit of young girls in imagining that they too could be in politics someday. So, you know, when we are teaching classes about the representation of women in politics, you see that women in senior roles are, the higher you go, the fewer there are. And there hasn't really been any meaningful improvement over the last three to four decades until Trudeau took office, until he said deliberately, we will have a cabinet that includes 50% women. Uh, he has lived that and uh, we see now that happening uh, elsewhere. So I think it's it's a really important uh, step of leadership that, you know, on some levels, it's it's a value statement. On other levels, it really matters if we want to see even numbers of men and women naturally in positions of leadership in the future. Yeah, and I would even push that a step further as well. One of the things actually that I don't think the prime minister talks about really at all is the fact that they also took an approach of all of their appointments having a 50% balance as well. And why I think that is so important, in addition to all of the things that Kate just said, uh, is in a lot of cases, these appointments actually come with a financial incentive. Um, and so when I'm looking at, you know, how, how the prime minister has kind of walked the walk, it's actually on economic empowerment for, for women. And, you know, just look at um, when we think about women living in poverty or just folks generally living in poverty, the highest level of poverty is felt by single mothers. Mm -hmm. And and again, like just having access to some of these higher level appointment roles or even, you know, the introduction of equity legislation, uh, those types of things will have a huge impact on women's economic empowerment, which in turn, in many cases, can have an impact on their own kind of personal autonomy, whether that's the ability to be able to leave violent situations or things like that. So that's something like I'm thinking a lot about is, is how, how kind of all of these types of policies interrelate with each other to really support literally women at the pocketbook. One thing that stands out to me in the the suite of things um, is to support the gender-based analysis that now accompanies each budget, which I think is like probably not going to be like a document that's not going to be read, but I, it is, I've never seen a government before release sort of an evaluative document that evaluates their own measures with a, using sort of a consistent framework that is intersectional, which I think is a really important part of it. Like it ties together income and economic factors with gender. Now, hold on just a second. You might be wondering, what the heck is gender-based analysis? 
Well, in the last budget, the government released a companion document that used something called gender-based analysis to assess how diverse groups of women, men, and non-binary people make experience policies, programs, and initiatives. It can be used in a variety of ways, but the point is really to more carefully examine how programs and policies are serving the needs of distinct groups of Canadians. Will investing in student loan relief help women or men more? How about lower high-income people? How about queer or trans Canadians? GBA Plus tries to take an intersectional approach to policymaking and analysis and development, and it's being rolled out right now across all federal government departments and agencies. So if you didn't know, now you know what gender-based analysis is. Uh, and they've also, I think, invested in a new uh, unit at StatsCan um, to uh, increase the amount that we know about gender equality and improve the, the data. Um, which is going to only allow better policy to be made in the future. So like in terms of investing at the top and then getting sort of the tools that we need to make even more progress, I think they, yeah, the federal liberals have a lot to be proud of. I will say that you mentioned the document and whether anyone reads it. I think that's a good question. I will say though, uh, I assign it in all of my classes on women in politics and it is teaching gold. Like it's, it's a jackpot uh, having students choose a policy issue that they care about and then having them read uh, a really well done analysis of the gender dimensions of the current uh, you know, policy framework, it's really helpful. And uh, every time that I have a class go through this exercise, the overwhelming sentiment from the group is that there are gender dynamics to policies uh, that they wouldn't have initially thought there were gender mm-hmm. dynamics to. And so building that awareness in people who are involved in, you know, this is really wonky, but anyone who's involved in public administration or making decisions about how public resources are spent. It needs to be something we are thinking about all the time, and it's a really concrete expression of uh, of a government's priorities. So, I, I even though I don't think it, it's read as often as it needs to, I think the fact that they're producing that kind of work and moving to produce more of that kind of work it's so important. So, I also uh, agree with that, and I I'm, as a you know as a government and policy uh, wonk myself, um, I think the gender based analysis work is great. I think the appointments are great. I, I think. To me, though, there's there's a, a distinction between the very good work that they're doing and where the strength is of this government, transforming government within and who is appointed within government um, and the way they look at policy. And then turning to that side that, that Katie did talk about um, a little bit about the, you know, the poverty reduction side of things. Um, some of the ex- big policy files externally that that really have a big impact on women. And that's, I think, where I don't see as much of this uh, narrative following through. And so Yes, you know, the investments in the child benefits, for example, were, were great in pulling a lot of children out of poverty, a lot of uh, single moms out of, out of poverty. Um, their record on, for instance, childcare investments, however, has been not as great. I mean, they haven't been investing at the levels that we need to be investing. And in. they uh, invested a, a significant amount of money in childcare capital, uh, but it was spread out over a long period of time and is nowhere near the kind of price tag dollar signs that we need to see if we're going to actually have a big movement toward universal childcare or something that really shifts the conversation about whose responsibility in society it is to uh, raise our children. Um, they did increase uh, you know, some of the parental leave, but again, they didn't really take the opportunity to, to change the way the parental leave is structured to really, again, change that conversation about whose responsibility it is and so on. So just want to make sure you're following all that. 
This will be my, just want to make sure you're following all of that music, by the way. Alexi mentioned a couple important things that the government has done and perhaps not done so well. One, the government introduced the Canada Child Benefit, which provides over $6,600 in annual payments targeted to low and middle income families with children. This has lifted an estimated 279,000 children out of poverty situations. Pretty good. Two, the government introduced modest reforms to employment insurance. They've increased the length of time you can be on parental leave and still get covered by your employment insurance. However, they didn't increase the amount of your wages that get replaced, how much EI actually gives you. So under the old and the new system, you still only get covered for 55% of your wages if you're taking 12 months and 33% of your wages if you're taking 18. So that's actually pretty hard if you are a low-income parent and you need to make ends meet and you have a child. It's much easier, say, if you're married and you have one parent that's working. So not so good, but not bad. Three, they added a new parental leave benefit for a second parent, increasing the amount of time EI will cover you for parental leave by five weeks if both parents agree to take some time off work to raise a child. So this is also uh, pretty good because it uh, creates an incentive for both parents to partake in child raising. To some extent, all you do by increasing the amount of parental leave to 18 months and uh, leaving it at relatively low EI levels to say, if you're able to afford these things, uh, you know, go ahead and take, make use of this program and in many ways reinforces the idea that now, uh, you know, the women's role can be uh, taking care of kids for 18 months instead of 12 months. Um, so I, I think there are some reasonable criticisms to his and his government's actions in some of those areas. And that's where I want to see the real impacts of that government, you know, that those pieces like the gender-based analysis, like my hope would be that by investing over four years in creating those gender-based analyses, then maybe he's maybe we're setting ourselves up for another government that's going to be able to make real progress on some of those more tangible issues that really affect people on the ground right now in their everyday lives. But I mm-hmm. I haven't seen that outcome yet, and so I'm still hopeful that that that's coming. But um, I to me, it's not enough that there's a lot of good signaling. I guess. Yeah, I'd agree that a lot of the progress has kind of particularly the early progress is made on you know, low-hanging fruit and the word you just use, signaling. Um, because I think there are, there are very real criticisms. One of the ones that I continue to have is, um, you know, when we talk about feminism, you know, this government seems to really be talking about female-centric. Um, there's They have definitely moved a little bit on LGBTQ, um, but it's not entirely intersectional. When we talk about, like, race, for example, or even, you know, focusing in on some of the very real challenges that men and boys are facing in society every day that are growing, right? You know, in Canada right now, our university participation rate is 65% women. So are boys getting the same level of education, for example? We look even to, to the US and seeing like such a rise in, in violence perpetrated by predominantly white men. And those are questions of feminism as well. And so um, I think that is something I find lacking a little bit. And I think, actually, to your point, it is about digging a bit deeper and, and to kind of get past those signalings. But at the same time, it's really hard to move on those things if you don't have um, equal representation in your cabinet, for example, or other things, because you don't really have a leg to stand on. Um, so I think a lot of the work that has been done so far really gives this government a leg to stand on when it does. Um, want to dig in a little bit deeper to some of those more challenging issues. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think, Alexi, you raised a lot of uh, areas where 
the government in the future needs to go. You know, is it perfect? The patriarchy has been around for a very long time. In four years, it's like, boom, great. Everyone is equal and every, you know, gender pay gap gone. Female participation in the workforce, like even, no, it's, it's going to take time. And I think where they have focused uh, initially, making sure that there is more equitable representation in senior leadership roles, making sure they have the information and knowledge they need when making decisions about how to spend resources, where we need additional uh, supports to be placed that people can benefit to help address problems that they are facing in their real lives. Those things really matter. Do they solve them all? No. But I think that they have set a really good foundation that I hope over the term and terms ahead we'll have a chance to be able to uh, to continue to grow upon. So would you guys say then, because if you're thinking about, you know, the future and there being an election, to what extent does, you know, Trudeau's re-election, is that a necessity for his legacy as a feminist prime minister? Has he done enough to institutionalize the things that he has done such that we simply won't have the pendulum swing back and everybody forgets about this stuff. So my personal view is that progress is really hard, right? It takes a lot of work. It takes continued pushing. And uh, a threat to progress is when we feel like we have accomplished something and, oh, look, this isn't a problem anymore. So for example, um, you know, the No Second Chances work, we looked at women in Canada's most senior leadership roles. And there was a moment in time when more than half of Canadians lived in provinces or territories that were led by women. And there was a lot of celebration and fanfare and, oh, look, isn't this great? Now we see, you know, women in even numbers and leadership roles. Well, look where we are today. That table has zero women. I don't think it's because we, you know, said, okay, congratulations, everyone. We're, we're done with this problem. We can move on to the next one. But I think that continued pushing for progress, it has to be there. And so, you know, is it perfect? No. But, you know, when we achieve a milestone, it's not about celebrating, it's about finding that next milestone and continuing to push forward. One of the things that sticks out to me in the, in the Trudeau record is, I guess, just how far maybe we think the conversation on feminism has come in the time that he's been in power. Because when he took power, I, I remember it was sort of a time where a lot of people were coming out in the media, celebrities, and sort of attaching that feminist label to themselves. And, and that was sort of a new moment. And I wonder if now that we are sort of four years down the line, starting to look beyond, you know, what does calling yourself uh, a feminism mean? I mean, I, I, like there's a really good thing. Like He's famous for saying poverty is sexist and sort of signaling and, and labeling it. But having a program that truly sort of tackles poverty is probably there's a lot of work there. There's still to be done. So I guess maybe turning towards the election we've seen in the fall of 2018, so last year, 36% of Canadians said that the Liberals were well-positioned on gender equity issues. It slipped to 30%. The Liberals still lead every other party on this issue. If we are looking in this moment to four years down the line, feminism is sort of part of even what the Conservatives are using to attack the Liberals on, what kinds of things do we want parties to adopt or pursue in the next election? What should Justin Trudeau be doing to sort of shore up his feminist credentials going into this on top of maybe just promoting uh, his previous record? I think one of the things that's interesting to me, um, and actually, so Radcan um, did this really great piece this past week, highlighting some of the kind of very serious issues with how parties actually um, run women. But one of the things I think is really important, you kind of mentioned it there, you know, the conservatives attacking Trudeau on on feminism. But you even look at like the US, this weird group of like, upper middle class white women that are kind of parroting this Trump is amazing to women narrative. So in a in a way, you've got these folks on kind of center right, 
that maybe think that the prime minister has pushed the narrative too far and that, you know, these kind of swayable voters and and seeing the small signals um, actually are something that they would be like, oh, yeah, great. This is so awesome. She nominated so many women. Yay. But I, to get back to kind of that, that first point, I'm really going to be looking to see how parties um, nominate um, candidates in their kind of stronghold ridings. There are a number of, of um, you know, men who have held their seats for a long time that aren't running this time around. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if parties replace them with women. I know in New Brunswick in our last election, we had, I think, five or six, again, men who decided not to run. They were in very safe liberal ridings, and we replaced all of them with men except one. Um, so, Kate, of course, you know this. Um, that is such a easy way to accelerate inclusion of women is by nominating them in seats that are traditionally held by that party or the party that's going to form government. So, so I really want to see how both how the liberals and how other parties how they actually nominate women, and if it's just a checkbox number to say that they've nominated so many. Just thinking about the sort of stage we're at in the election right now, I'm really glad to see that there's been so much attention on these signaling things like the percentage of female candidates, uh, how winnable are the seats where they're running, uh, how are the party leaders talking about uh, issues that uh, are of particular importance to women and girls. I think as we move into, you know, once the writ is dropped and we're starting to see uh, policy ideas come forward, we're starting to hear leaders talk about what this election is really all about. I hope we hear gender considerations as a really big part of that narrative. And I think for me, that's sort of the credential piece. We need to see leaders who are running their campaigns and on a vision that includes uh, raising the lives of women and girls in Canada. So those are the things that I, I think we're not quite there in terms of the timing, but that I think a lot of people should be listening for. I just want to add, uh, because it's a frustration of mine, that it is a well-established in the literature fact that there is a strong positive correlation between proportional representation, electoral systems, and women being elected to legislatures. That is something that I think I continue to come back to when I think of this government's record as something that was very disappointing earlier on when they decided to distance themselves from their promises around electoral reform. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. And, and I think like even further to that, Kate, you mentioned it earlier in the episode, but we haven't had real movement on, on women being elected in, I don't know, the last 50 years. If we see that again this time around, you know, electoral reform is one, is one, one thing to talk about. But I think we also need to start having serious conversations about how important this actually is to us. And if it is as important as you know, some Canadians would suggest it is, then we need to start having conversations about quotas, about, you know, financial incentives, things like that, because, you know, we're, we're already not going to, at this rate, we're not going to hit the sustainable development goal um, as one of, you know, the strongest democracies and one of, you know, the wealthiest countries in the world to say that we can't hit this goal of gender representation. So yeah, I'm thinking about that, really. I also think we should talk, though, about, you know, it's not rocket science. We know why women run not as frequently as men. We know some of the things about politics that keep women out. You know, the divisiveness, the negativity, the kind of things that Catherine McKenna has been really fantastically public about, and I really respect her for this. You know, some of this is not up to governments to fix. It's up to us as Canadians to acknowledge that there are parts of the political culture in this country that need to change if we want to see a greater diversity of people step forward. There are a lot of things beyond just leaders and parties and who's forming government that uh, I think we need to be talking a lot more about. And I really applaud 
uh, people like Catherine McKenna for being so open about what her experience has been like as a woman in a senior role. And uh, a lot of those things are on us. It is on us as Canadians to acknowledge that that is not okay and it must change. I want to uh, ask a question about things that aren't okay. But before we leave this point of things that I I want to see more progressive parties and governments take uh, a stand on in this, Canada is still spending towards the lower end of the OECD on uh, supports for children. And, you know, that at the end of the day uh, is a real barrier to labor force participation. And that really sort of came through in a lot of the literature that I was reviewing. So uh, more of a conversation on that. And I think, uh, Kate uh, Hammer, you said in our last pod that it's hard to call yourself a feminist government and not support universal child care. So that's a thing that I am, I, I think I will continue to believe. Before. Yeah. And Justin Trudeau was just at the Toronto Star editorial board and was asked about that, about whether he'd be his, you know, whether there'd be anything in his platform, whether he'd be making a move on that. I think right now, like just to give you context, you got to be spending about 1% of GDP to have a meaningful childcare program. And I mean, basically to have any kind of meaningful movement on gender equity. And uh, I think Canada is at 0.3% of GDP in terms of spending. So we're, we're way behind. And then in terms of developed yeah. countries, we're just, we're, we're right at the bottom. We're very near the bottom. We've made some progress, I think, in the last kind of, I'd say, five to 10 years. We, we used to be the very bottom, and now we're sort of just one of the bottom. But anyway, point of story, Justin Trudeau was asked at the, at the Ed Board and um, basically um, said it's the responsibility of the provinces. So the the childcare sector is pretty, pretty despondent right now. I think it's pretty clear it's not coming this round. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think the truth is that, that it's hard to make movement on this stuff for women as long as there isn't sort of affordable care until your until children are about. I, I don't. I don't know actually province by province what this looks like, right? But until children are about the age of twelve, the preponderance of that care ends up falling um, mostly to women. And then, and then the, the number of single mothers there are in this country, right? So you just, you know, do the math on what that means for women across this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot of work to do there still. Yeah, yeah. And they, they, they made some tangible step, I think, by including the sort of user to lose it paternity benefit, because that, that kind of invites both parents to participate, but it is still, I think, enmeshed in a system that is just not providing the level of support for low-income women particularly, or low-income parents particularly, to participate in What's interesting about leave, I remember seeing data on that and um, like the number of people who even make it through a full parental leave is really low. Um, it's really expensive to take a parental leave. I remember like it's like less than 50%, which, you know, because yeah, I, I surprised me because I feel like, you know, in my own life, I knew most people I knew had, had made it through. It's it's interesting that most people can't afford to sort of take the full leave. And then, and then you have to remember too, that means they're, tr- they're putting their children in care at a cost of, I mean, in downtown Toronto, that's $2,000 a month. And they're getting on those wait lists that Doug Ford has now made longer, hoping for a subsidized space and looking at a longer shot. And then the truth of what they're probably doing is them putting their child in informal care, right? With um, no guaranteed standard of care for their child. This is a this is a real problem. And it's actually the most vulnerable who end up in a really difficult situation. And it's a real, what's happening across the country is a real smorgasbord. There's a whole bunch of different things happening. I want to give a shout out to the NDP who do have a plan that they're in BC that they're implementing, but it's a still a lottery system, right? Not everyone's getting in. So we, we need a solution in Canada. Yeah. An area where I think some leadership from a feminist government would be welcome. Yeah. I'm so glad <laughs> that you have been such a passionate advocate for this and we need to keep talking about it. It's a little mind-boggling in 2019 that uh, you know some of these problems are old and hard and complicated, and some of them just aren't. 
And so we need to keep pushing on that one. Speaking of things that aren't acceptable uh, or maybe hard to believe in 2019, on the other side of the political spectrum, uh, Maxine Bernier, a leader who is probably not as worried about his feminist CV, was in the news recently for personally criticizing Swedish teenager and climate change activist uh, Greta Thunberg. In a sadly presidential tweet, he said Greta Thunberg is clearly mentally unstable, not only autistic, but obsessive compulsive eating disorder, depression, and lethargy. She lives in a constant state of fear. I should say Bernier sort of walked his comments back later, but it's hard to actually, how do you walk that back? We also have seen um, instances, uh, we talked about Catherine McKenna a little bit earlier in the pod, where, you know, she's had a ton of just like obscenely sexist invective. She was outside a movie theater with her children when a driver pulled up and shouted, fuck you, climate Barbie. Why do we think Maxine Bernier is spewing hateful comment? And why do we think that it seems like there's an increasing amount of these hateful comments, particularly for people who may want the planet to last past the 2030s and for people who might be, you know, women who are at the forefront of change. I, I think I like many people when I first saw those tweets, I am normally a pretty happy, calm, relaxed type of person. And I was just enraged. I could not believe that the leader of a Canadian political party would uh, say things like that about a young woman who is absolutely amazing and trying to save the world quite literally. Uh, It just was so unwarranted and really repulsive and felt quite embarrassed actually as a Canadian because it just does not reflect uh, our country. But I think these really egregious expressions speak to what happens when we see power dynamics shifting. And I think we see this uh, in a lot of different ways where, you know, the young woman who cares about climate change, she has a voice in today's environment that, you know, we couldn't even imagine before social media, you know, 10, 20 years ago, that poses a real threat to some. It poses a threat to the status quo and to orders of power that are, I think, ripe for disruption right now. And so I think it's just, it's like a tip of the iceberg kind of indication that we do see some of these uh, underlying power structures shifting in a really good and important way, but uh, it's going to cause a response, that's for sure. And uh, those awful tweets were just one example of that. Yeah, I think we, t- we keep talking about signaling um, in this episode, but I think that's exactly as well what's happening here. You know, this type of public discourse, even three years ago, I would say in the pre-Trump era, would, would like it would have been shocking for it to occur. But as with every signal people are getting from whether it's, again, like the whether it's the US, whether it's the UK, whether it's even here in Canada, it's allowing this type of narrative to to become, it's, it's allowing for this dialogue to a light of day, I guess. But I think like the reality too is, it's not clear to me that Maxine Bernay has never not been thinking these types of things. Like when we talk about those power structures, again, right? Like, you know, there are lots of power holders who have always said, these types of things about young women in the back rooms. And that's honestly, like, to me, it's not entirely surprising to see this coming to the forefront with everything else that's going on in the world. It's, like, so disheartening, and I totally agree. It made me feel sick, but I'm also not entirely surprised. When it comes from a leader, when it comes from Trump, when it comes from Bernier, you know, it creates a permission space where uh, those ideas can be expressed more often. And I think the people who we see as targets, I mean, in this case, it's a 16-year-old girl. Uh, we see it being targeted at you know, female politicians who are in positions of power. But this is a, a, a young activist who is 
trying to, she's working so hard and doing amazing things and is so undeserving of that. And so seeing someone in a position of power is so overtly attacking a young woman who's not in a position of power, it creates permission for other people to feel that they can do the same. It really underscores for me just to how much, even though we have moved the dial on, on feminism a little bit, I think, um, that how much sexism still exists in our society. Men continue to feel empowered to be awful to women. Uh, I will actually always remember, it was like a year before the last provincial election, I traveled with then Premier Kathleen Wynne to an announcement. And that was not a thing I did often, so it was like a big day for me on school infrastructure. Part of the day was, you know, we would be out in the schoolyard and meet some parents and kids before going into the school and announcing $1.6 billion in school infrastructure funding. I will always remember there was this like, group of like basically dads like all white men uh who just like felt totally free to approach the premier like and just like tell her they thought she was destroying ontario and i got kind of confrontational in a way that i just could never see happening with a man and so it really underscored for me there's a sexism that you know people feel free to both uh, push it up and 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 down, you know, for people who have power, like the Premier of Ontario, and people who don't, like, you know, teenagers and activists. So, yeah, lots of lots lots of work still to do, uh, in my opinion. There has always been this sort of cancer in our society, and and for a long time, maybe before it flared up again, it was below the surface, and we didn't um, recognize, we didn't talk about it, we didn't know about it as well as we do now, and. There's something to be said for the ability to attack that illness more appropriately now that we are more aware of its manifestation as a result of you know what's happened since sort of 2016-ish or so. So if there has to be a bright side, I try to, to look at it from that perspective. Totally agree with that. And I think we do, to use the Candace Bergen label, you know, there is a sense that women have been muzzled from speaking for some time. This is what was so destabilizing, but also incredible about the Me Too movement is women being able to speak up and use their voice in ways that, you know, just hasn't happened uh, as much as it needs to throughout history. And so I do think we see that happening. And I'm just, every time we see a Greta or a Catherine McKenna, someone just calling it out head on. Uh, I think as people who care about, you know, supporting women and girls in this country, uh, we should be cheering them on as loudly as we possibly can. And that's it. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Kate and Katie, for being on the show. Good luck. Kate Graham in your quest to become liberal leader. We're all fans here. We will be back next week to talk about Ontario and all the weird stuff Doug Ford's government has been doing while we've been gone, so stay tuned for that. I want to send a huge shout out to Aisha Anwar and Harman Mundy for being our social media coordinators. Aisha's been doing this for a while. Harman's new, but I am really excited for what they're going to be able to do to make our show sound more hip, more fun, all those things that we actually are trying to convince you that we are. Ontario Loud is produced by myself and Philip Askew, who's just joined us as a recording engineer. So thank you so much, Philip, for all that you've done. Ontario Loud is also brought to you by Patreon support. So if you like what you hear, go to patreon.com slash Ontario Loud or OntarioLoud.ca. We are so happy to be back and we will see you next week.